0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as Chancellor mentioned, my name is Brad Holloman. I'm actually Ryan's dad, for those of you that aren't familiar with Ryan and Taylor, um, co-pastors of the church, and he is doing his military responsibilities this weekend. And when that happens, I get the, the ability and the, to come up and share God's Word with you, which I always enjoy, uh, even though we're a, a little bit smaller group today. We all know why. And uh, hopefully we can be a blessing in a community right now that is running around with its hair on fire. We really don't understand thing that's going on, and, and the interesting thing of it is I don't believe the leadership understands what's really going on, which contributes to the confusion. Um, but a couple of years ago, or a couple of months ago, actually, when Ryan was distributing the different sections of Scripture that Chancellor and I were going to be responsible for speaking on, as well as Ryan, I got the one about being prepared and so in January I'm looking at it and I'm going okay well in March I'm going to be talking about being prepared I wonder how I could apply that (laughs) right now fast forward a couple of months and here we are it's all about being prepared about not being in that mile-long line at Costco to buy toilet paper right it's about avoiding that and being prepared for the unknown for what we don't know is going to happen uh, either tomorrow or, for that matter, a couple of months in, into the future. It is an uncertain time. It is a difficult time, and we're all scared, and we're all confused uh, to a certain degree. But let me just step aside as my, in, in my sermon a little bit right now. You know, I've been around a long time, 68 years, and so I can tell you that I've been through this stuff before. Right. I was in the. Uh, I lived through the stock market meltdown of 1987. The stock market lost 50 percent of its value in almost one day. Um, you know, September 11th, 2001. Um, the the Great Recession, 2008, that lasted until about 2011. We all unemployment was at 13 percent, and we had SARS. We had MERS. We had H1N1. And all of these have hit us and created the sense of confusion and concern. You know, I remember being in this same area, the same mood back in those situations as well where we're, we just didn't know what was going to happen. But praise God, we've always come through it. We've always endured it. We've always come through it stronger, and we will this time as well. There's no doubt in my mind about it. Certainly, this is a different circumstance. It's global. It's pandemic. But it nonetheless speaks to our endurance and our ability as Christians to face these types of situations and do so with full knowledge of God, uh, who has everything in control. And that's what we rely upon. That's where we draw our strength. I remember... um, Ryan was 15 years old. Now, you guys all have a somewhat idealized version of Ryan. I've seen him. I've seen him, and I, I remember one time, it, it's, it's so funny, he was 15 years old, and he came up to Nancy and I, and he said, you know what, uh, Mom and Dad, I want to go to India on a mission trip. And Nancy and I had a conversation, and we talked about it. 15 years old is awfully young, to be flying halfway around the world to a country that is, you know, it has a great deal going for it, but it also has a great deal of cultural gaps in it, medical capability gaps. And so we were worried, but we said, all right, you're going to be in good company. These, the, the men and women that are going are going to take care of you. And he flew off. And he was going to be gone for two weeks. And there was a great deal of apprehension on our part every day. And then one day, Nancy gets a call from Ryan's girlfriend's mom. And Ryan had, uh, they didn't have text back then, but he had communicated with his girlfriend that he was terribly sick with malaria. Didn't call us. He told his girlfriend And it just so happens his girlfriend's mom was walking by and saw the note. And so she called Nancy and said, you know what? You may want to check into this, but Ryan says he's terribly sick with malaria. Now what was going on at the same time was the SARS outbreak. And many of you don't even remember SARS. But SARS was a global pandemic as well. And so what happened is all of the airports around the world... We're checking the temperature of people as they were getting off a plane and getting on a connection, and so I I'm immediately thinking that if Ryan has malaria and he tra- has a layover in Singapore, then another layover in Tokyo before he flies to Los Angeles, he's going to be temperature gauged at all of those airports. He's not going to make it home, and I remember having standing in front of our our fireplace. At one in the morning, because um, India was 12 hours ahead of us, and thinking, okay, it's one in the afternoon in India, he's getting on his plane, I just hope, Lord, that he makes it. And I remember pacing literally for hours and hours in front of the fireplace and asking God to get him home. I contacted a friend of mine in Tokyo who is uh, a missionary. His name is Takeshi Takazawa. And I contacted Takeshi and I said, Takeshi, if they pull him off the plane in Tokyo, get to the airport and take care of him. I, I had my passport. I was ready if he got held up in Singapore to hop a plane and fly to Singapore to be with him. I literally had my passport in my hand as I was praying, and I was enduring this, and I was convoluted with with fear and concern. I was praying continuously, hardly ever sleeping during this whole 24-hour period that would take him to get from Bangalore to L.A. I was up all night and all day praying, hoping that he would make all of his connections to get home. The time came to go to LAX and Tom Bradley International Airport, or terminal, and I get in the car with Nancy and and a friend, and we race to the airport, and I get to Tom Bradley International Terminal, and I'm standing there. And if you've ever been there, you come up, out, there's a ramp that comes up, and then all of the people that are getting off their flight after they go into customs, they, they come up the ramp, and they're greeted by their relatives and friends as they come home. And I'm standing there and I'm pacing and I'm pacing and I'm looking down at the ramp and I see that people are coming up with their luggage and it's from India. And I can tell, okay, his flight's in. Now, I didn't know whether he had made it or not. And I'm walking away and I'm concerned and I'm confused. And then all of a sudden I hear, hey, Pops. And I turn around and he's got his backpack on and he's perfectly healthy. I could have killed him because I was ready to rush him to the airport, and he's holding his backpack, and I said, I thought you were sick. He goes, I was, but God made me better, and I'm going, and you don't understand the, the relief that just flows through you when your son is standing in front of you, and he's back home, and he's safe. It's amazing, though, how much anxiety and how much concern you can go through in situations like we're in right now, though, how your mind can play games on you, how it can drive you to that darkest area if you let it, how the news can drive you to that darkest area if you let it. Now, I'm not saying don't be concerned. That's not my point at all. But what I am saying is that be prepared. And that's what Jesus is talking about today. And Jesus, if you'll go to Matthew chapter 25, we're going to talk about being prepared. Matthew chapter 25. And as we go there, I want to just remind you that in situations like we're experiencing right now, as a congregation and as a community and as a country, what you need is wisdom. The wisdom to be able to decipher what's going on. The wisdom to be able to understand fact from fiction and fear. And Jesus, or it says in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives freely and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But if you ask, do not ask by doubting, because one who asks while he doubts is like a wind, like a wave that is tossed by the wind back and forth. In these times, you need wisdom. And so we should be praying to God for wisdom in an uncertain situation. It also says in Proverbs 3, it says that, lean not on your own, trust in God with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. So in all of these situations that we're facing, we need to look to God for wisdom. We need to look to God for understanding. We need to look to God to help us sort through the confusion, the fear, and the chaos. And he'll provide the peace which passeth all understanding. Just a couple of words of encouragement. We've all been here before, if you're my age. You remember those situations that were always the end of the world, and we've always come through it. As believers as community and as a country and we will again we just have to have wisdom and know where we place our understanding so we look at Matthew chapter 25 and in fact we even go back a little bit to to the early part the first verse of chapter 24 Matthew and it says that the disciples are surrounding Jesus and they begin to point out certain things about the temple to him as if he needs to have that done But they begin to point out certain things about the temple to him, and he begins to change their direction a little bit, as he always does. And what he tries to do with us as well is he tries to take our view and our eyes off our circumstances, the rubble of our lives, the confusion of our lives, and point everything heavenward. Give us an eternal perspective of what's going on. So while the disciples are pointing out the the temple, Jesus is now going to redirect their thoughts, their spiritual eyes, to being prepared. Because the end times are coming, according to Jesus. Now, I'm not going to get into the end times discussion that Jesus talks about here. But he does talk in verses 5 through 14 of chapter 24. He talks about the end times. In verses 15 through 28, he talks about the false Christ and the false hope that'll pop up during these difficult times. And then in verses 36 through 51, he shifts his perspective into how to be prepared for the end times. Now, I'm not saying these are the end times. You're going to see people out there that are talking about pandemics and earthquakes and everything. These are the end times. I am not qualified to tell you that. I don't know. But I will tell you that Jesus speaks very clearly about being prepared and living a life that honors and glorifies God the Father in all circumstances and at all times as if it was the end times. That's where we're to put our hearts. That's where we're to put our souls and our actions. And so he talks about it's understanding that we have to behave in a manner that glorifies him. Look at verse 46 of chapter 24. It says, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Touch on it a little bit later, but we don't know the time and hour of Jesus' return. So we cannot polish up our lives knowing that he's going to be showing up in a minute. What we have to do is we have to live in a consistent God-rhythm-type life that honors and glorifies Him regardless of whether He shows up in the next millisecond or if He shows up in the next thousand years. We have to live intentionally. We have to live focused. We have to live God-fearing lives that reflect His life, His love, His glory, and His forgiveness to a lost and dying world. We have to live intentionally, even in circumstances like we're in right now. You know, people, if you go to work still or if you go to school, because a lot of businesses are closed down, a lot of schools are closed down, but they're going to be looking at you. Now, I'm not putting too much of a weight on you here, and I don't mean to, but people are going to be looking at you and asking if they know that you're a believer, if you're a disciple of Christ, how do you feel about this situation? What gives you the hope? How does God approach this? How can God allow this? And it becomes incumbent upon you as believers and disciples to be able to respond in a faith-filled, hope-filled way. You have to live intentionally. You have to live in a God-rhythm life so that people will see the difference in situations like this because I guarantee you that people are scared to death. And it's always been men and women of faith throughout history that have helped people get through circumstances such as we're facing right now. In fact, situations that are significantly worse. It's always been people like you that have been true disciples of Jesus Christ that have reflected his hope, his confidence, and his security in times of struggle. And it's no less now. So Jesus talks to us about being prepared. And he goes into a situation now in verses 48 and 49 that if the evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. So Jesus is saying there, we're to live lives that honor him in preparation for his return, but we're also not to fall into the rhythm of the world and live as if he's not coming back or if his, his return has been delayed. He's not coming right now, so I can just go ahead and live any way that I want. And again, I'm hoping that my timing's good so that when he does come back, I'll be in a good place. But God doesn't play games like that. And that's the parable that we're going to talk about right now. So let's go into prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, these times are scary. Lord, our leadership has no answers. Our schools and our businesses are shutting down. Father, we don't know what tomorrow holds. Say nothing to next year. Lord, we sit in our homes isolated in many respects. I see that many familiar faces are not here today out of fear. And it's justifiable in that sense. A lot of people have conditions, Lord. A lot of people have age issues. Protect them and watch over them. But Lord, we have to be prepared in all circumstances to be that true and accurate reflection of Jesus Christ to be able to have that confidence that we know who is in control. You love us, you care for us in the worst of circumstances. Lord, we ask for your presence now in this room, in this building, as we talk about being prepared to honor and glorify you, regardless of what happens. For it's in your Son's mighty and precious name we ask these things. Amen. So we go now from kind of the context and setting this up a little bit where Jesus is talking about the end times, false Christ, being ready. And now he goes into a parable or a story, which he always loved to do. He always loved to communicate truths through parables and stories. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 25, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Jesus kind of transitions and he says this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish. Five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent, the wise, took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now when the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some oil for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. You know, this is a a kind of a strange story, the parable, because it opens up several questions. The first question is, where's the bride? Right? Talking about the bridegroom, talking about the attendance, talking about the feast and the party. But where's the bride? And where were these attendants, these virgins staying, right? Where were they waiting? And what were the lamps for? So there are a lot of questions because this particular parable doesn't correlate, doesn't correspond with a typical Jewish wedding. So Jesus is kind of taking this parable and building it as he goes along the framework of a wedding, but not necessarily holding tightly to it. He kind of builds it out to make his point. Because in a typical Jewish wedding, the bridegroom would go to the bride's house, pick up the bride and bring her back to his place where they would have the wedding ceremony and the feast. So this doesn't fit quite that way. But Jesus is trying to get across a the point, the, the main point of which is you have to be prepared. Secondly, these lamps that the, the virgins are carrying are not lamps like you would find in a house. They were more likely uh, like a torch, like you would find something that they could carry that was portable, that they could carry along with them. A lamp in the house would not be able to be carried out uh, to, to meet the bridegroom. So they had these lamps that were more like torches. So the oil that's inside these flasks, I believe, represents salvation. The commentaries that I read also believe that the oil represents salvation, right? And there are people that have the flask, all right? They have the outward appearance of being filled with oil of salvation, But you can't see into the flask, so you don't know that they're empty. You know, I've always thought when I was reading and studying this out, why in the world would these particular attendants, these particular virgins, take flasks that they knew were empty? It's like taking a flashlight on a camping trip without batteries. Of what use is it? What would you use it for? And yet they did that. Now, some people say, well, maybe they didn't know it was empty. Maybe they thought it was half full. Maybe they, but you check those types of situations. When you're going to an attendant, when you're going to a party, when you're going to be part of the processional, you make sure that things are in order, that everything's working. And what happens is half of these attendants, half of these virgins, don't take any oil whatsoever. It means that they never had, in my mind, in the mind of commentators that I read, they never had salvation. They had all the accoutrements, they had all of the look of salvation, but they didn't have salvation. They didn't have that inner confidence, that inner commitment that we all like to make to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus calls them as foolish. They may have, and in my notes, I kind of was rambling and writing my notes down, but in my notes it said, maybe... Just maybe, they thought they would have time to get the oil that they needed. Maybe they were going out and they thought, well, it's empty now. But I'll guarantee you that by the time the bridegroom gets here, I'll be able to find a shop, I'll be able to find a store, or somebody who has oil that I can fill this with. Obviously, they didn't know about the coronavirus and all the businesses shutting down. But they probably thought that they had time in order to fill a flask with their oil. Now let's take that out of the context of the oil, and let's talk about a spiritual relationship, commitment to Jesus Christ. You and I all know people who have somewhat of an interest in a relationship with Christ, but they don't want to make the commitment right now. There's an interest, but there's not a commitment. And they all think that, well, you know what? If I time it just right, I can get saved just before he shows up. That's what they were thinking with the oil. Perhaps, maybe, I can find a place, even though it's midnight, that has oil that I could put in my flask before the bridegroom shows up. Some of you know the story, but I tell it because it's so poignant for me. But my mom passed away in 1995, April 1st, 1995, unexpectedly healthy woman, golfed, enjoyed life, um, had a heart attack, ended up in the hospital. And uh, I went and visited her, and I led her to the Lord on her, literally, as she was wheeled away into surgery, um, and I never saw her again. But she accepted Christ just as she was going into surgery and never came out of surgery. And so, within my heart, I had hope that I was going to see my mom again. My heart was broken that I lost her. But I also knew that I'll see her again. I had that confidence that she's home with Jesus. And uh, my dad is not a believer, was never a believer, and when he died several years later. But my brother, Brady, who is three years younger than me, I remember we went to his house after mom passed away. And... Um, We were standing at the kitchen sink and I was looking out the window into his yard and I was washing my hands and Brady walks up next to me and Brady says, and this is his quote, he goes, Brett, you look like you're almost bulletproof. And he goes, what's going on here? And I, I, right over the sink as he was standing next to me, I said, well, Brady, I said, mom made a confession and accepted Christ as her savior just before she went into surgery. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm going to see her again. And my heart is broken that I lost her. And my heart is broken for the pain that we're all going through, you and dad. And, and I but I know, Brady, I'm going to see her again. And I said, man, don't you want to see her again? Don't you want that hope? Come on, man. And he looked at me and he said, no. He said, no, this is what I'm going to do, Brett. Now forgive the way he phrases. He goes, I'm going to live like hell just until he shows up. And then I'm going to come to you to get saved. It doesn't work that way, buddy. It doesn't work that way. You don't know when he's going to show up. He's not going to announce it. He's going to show up when we least expect it. Scripture says that. Scripture says that Jesus is going to show up when we least expect him. And so as individuals, we have to be in rhythm with God. We have to live a life that honors him every second of every day. And now you look at me and you say, how can we possibly do that? well, we're all going to stumble. We're all going to fail. I do on a daily basis. And I do things in my life that dishonor him and cause him confusion and pain. I definitely do because I haven't achieved that level of perfection that he is capable of giving to me yet. I will on his return. But until that point in time, I am a fallen individual. I am a struggling individual that tries to honor him, that tries to glorify him, and yet fails on a regular basis. Not because I want to, but because it's my nature. But I try to live that life that when he returns, he'll find this servant doing what is right and honorable and glorifying to God. But he is incredibly understanding and forgiving. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he may as well have been talking directly to me. We have a great, gracious, forgiving God. And while we try to live a life in preparation for him, a life filled with the oil in the flask, there are times when we'll stumble. And that's when he forgives us the most. His grace outmatches any mistake that we can possibly make. Wherever you're at, whatever your situation, whatever you've done in the past, whatever you will do in the future, wherever you sit right now with your addictions, with your your relationships that are flawed and flailing, with your finances, with your position in life, wherever you're at, he wants to meet you there. He doesn't want to leave you there, but he wants to meet you there. And he wants to wrap his arms around you. And he wants to bring you to that saving knowledge. And he wants to lift you above the chaos that the world right now is giving us in heaps. Lift you above that chaos and show you that there's a better way, there's an eternal way that lifts us out of our circumstances and the rubble of our lives. He wants us to live a life where we're prepared for whatever happens, including his return. So these These attendants, these virgins, they're walking. Then all of a sudden something interesting happens. Verse number 5 of chapter 25. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. You know, until until the bridegroom shows up, all of, the, all of the attendants, all of the virgins looked the same, right? They all had the same flask, They had the same torches. They had the same lamps. They all suffered from the same sleep and drowsiness because he didn't show up right away. He delayed. And yet when he shows up and the announcement comes that the bridegroom has arrived and they all jump up, all of the attendants, all the virgins, and they began to light their lamps, it's at that point that the distinction became apparent. Because until the bridegroom showed up, in this case Christ, everybody looked kind of the same. They were all doing the same thing. They all looked alike. They were all saying the same Christian platitudes. They were all uttering the same prayers, but in their hearts they were different. Some had made that commitment. Their flasks were full. Others had not made their commitment, but they were playing the game. Their flasks were empty. And it didn't become apparent which was which until the bridegroom showed up. And when the bridegroom shows up and they're all scrambling to light their lamps, that's when the ones that have the spiritual nature Honoring Christ and the ones that don't have it became apparent. Look how the bridegroom ends the conversation. That the one, the one set of virgins, they go and try to find the oil that they thought they would have time to get, and the other virgins, the other attendants that were prepared to meet the bridegroom at his unannounced visit, they're ready, they light their lamps, and they go into the wedding feast. The virgins that were not prepared, Perhaps they got the oil. They show up late. The door's shut. They pound on the door, saying, Lord, let us in. Let us in. And then this is what the bridegroom says. Verse number 12 of chapter 25. But he answered and said, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. And as I was studying that out, I said, now where have I heard that before? Where the bridegroom says, I do not know you. They come back, the attendants come back, now probably with oil, now with a life fully committed to Christ, but the door has been shut. And they pound on the door looking for acceptance, looking for entrance into the wedding feast, and the bridegroom says, "Uh, I don't know you. Go back with me if you would to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus, again, is talking somewhat in parables here, and he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. But many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruit. Now look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The same figure of speech The attendants who pound on the door and asking the bridegroom to be let into the wedding feast. Jesus has a corresponding verse there. That people who have a flask but it doesn't have any oil in it will say, We did this. We cast out demons. We prophesied in your name. We did all of these great things. Come on, let us in. Let us in. And Jesus will look right through their actions and into their hearts and say, you know what? I never knew you. Depart from me. Because, folks, it's not the actions that make us attractive to God that led us into the wedding feast. There are many people that have the correct actions, the correct verbiage, the correct prayers and thoughts but they don't have the correct commitment. I love what Isaiah says. You don't have to go there, but I'll read it to you. Isaiah says this in chapter, chapter 3. Let me go there. Uh, bear with me just one moment. In chapter 29, pardon me, verse 13. Then the Lord said, because these people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. What Isaiah is saying there is that people are saying they're they're providing lip service to God. They're saying the right things. But you'll notice he says, they remove their hearts far from me. Because while the outward accoutrements are there, while the visible changes are there, it's the heart change that's missing. They have taken their hearts and moved them away from God. And that's what's happening. Is to these attendants, these five virgins, that don't have the oil, that don't have the spiritual nature, when the bridegroom returns, when Christ returns, they're unprepared for what they're about to experience and what they're about to meet. And they run around and they, maybe they find themselves. Maybe they find a the love for God now. But it's too late because the door to the wedding feast has been closed. And Jesus says, Depart from me. The bridegroom says, Depart from me. I don't know you. And so, my, my request to you today is remarkably simple Have you had a heart change? Have you made that commitment to Christ? Or are you simply going through the actions without having made the commitment? A friend of mine once said, you know, Brad, I'm a a Christian. I go to church. And we've all heard this response. I said, you know what, buddy? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. It doesn't. It takes a heart change. It takes a change in commitment to be prepared each and every day as only a true disciple can be for the return of the bridegroom. So is your flask filled? Does it contain that spiritual completeness? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Second Corinthians says that you become the home of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Has the Holy Spirit entered you as the oil has entered the flasks? i want to finish up with one last thought. I'm going to move from the flask. I'm going to move from being prepared. I just want to touch a little bit on what the lamps are and how they work. You know, it occurred to me as I was writing this out and I was studying it out, a lot of the younger folks here don't even know what a lamp with oil in it is. They don't, you know. They, the only lamps they're familiar with probably is their phone when they turn it on and they Right? Which is cool, I mean, because in 30 years, they'll be laughed at by their kids. <laughs> I'm ready for it. I wish I could be around for it. I probably won't. But they'll have to explain to their kids how they used to turn on the flashlights for their, for their mobile devices. Now, a lamp in those days was something that would contain oil in somewhat of a, a re- repository, like a, a bell or something that you'd put the oil in. And then you'd have a wick that would be of cloth or woven cloth or something. And the wick would dip down into the oil. The oil, through convection, would come up through the wick. And then you would light the wick, and the oil would be drawn up through the wick as the wick burns. Right? Pretty simple device. But these folks, they had oil in the lamps. And they had, when when the bridegroom shows up, It says in verse number seven, again, in Matthew 25, then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps and the foolish said to the prudent, give us some oil for our lamps are going out. Wait a minute, their lamps are going out. I thought, Brett, you said they didn't have any oil. How could the lamps be lit and going out if there was no oil? Well, I believe that The wicks, there's probably no oil in the lamp itself or in the flask, but the wicks probably had residue oil left from previous use. And so those wicks probably burned for a second or two as they lit them. But when the oil was drawn out of the wicks and had no reservoir to draw additional oil out of, the wicks just went out. And it reminded me of people many of which make that profession of uh, faith to Christ. But they don't draw on the deep spiritual availability of the oil. They're only so deep in their commitment to Christ, right? They, they, they make a commitment to Christ. They may be in a crisis in their life. They may be a, in an existential crisis in the community, in the world like we are now. And they, God help me, God save me. right but it's not a deep heartfelt commitment it's a surface level commitment to get them out of a situation the old saying there are no atheists in foxholes they look for this and and so their commitment to christ is very superficial in fact if you look at uh, matthew 13 jesus talks about the parable of the sower and the sower throws out seeds and some of the seed lands in rocky soil And it doesn't get good root, and the sun comes out and scorches it and withers away. And other seed is cast, and the thorns strangle it as it comes up. Because it doesn't have a deep-seated faith. doesn't have a deep-seated root. And so what this may be a corresponding thing where the, the wicks have some residual oil on them. And and the foolish virgins, the foolish attendants are lighting the wicks and they burn for a moment. The oil burns up, but there's no reservoir to draw from and the wicks go out. And then they go to the wise attendants, the wise virgins, and they say, hey, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. And the wise attendants, the wise virgins say, well, we're not going to do that because if we give you the oil and we have oil, there's not going to be enough to complete The the function at the wedding feast that we have to do. We can't give it to you. You should have thought ahead. You should I'm kind of reading into it there. But it's implied that they're telling them we have a responsibility that requires a full flask and a and a focus on the bridegroom. We cannot be accountable for your lack of preparation. And so they don't get the oil from the wise virgins, from the wise attendants. And their wicks, which may have had some residue of oil on them from previous use, quickly burns out because it doesn't have the sustaining spiritual basis of the oil. I remember, you know, I I still love talking to people about the Lord. I still love talking to people about His grace and His forgiveness, His love, His power and His wisdom that we all need right now. I love that. And I've been doing it for years. And I, I've talked to people and they say, yeah, that's what I want. I want that right now because I'm in such chaos in my life. And so we, we say a prayer together and they commit their lives to Christ. And they turn over their will and their lives and their direction to Him. There's a section of Scripture that says, however... You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And I tell them as we're done, I said, you know what? You can say that prayer, and you've confessed with your mouth, and it fools me. Maybe. But it's that part where you believe in your heart. That's where God sees into your heart, and he knows the depth of your conviction. He knows the depth of your commitment to him. You can't fool him. And sure enough, many of these people that I've had those same conversations with have got up, left, and then a couple of years or three or four years later, I'll ask about them, if they found a church, if they got deep into the word, if they're involved in in community. And I hear things like, no, man, he, he didn't follow through at all. His life's a mess or he went off a different direction because they confessed with their mouth, but they didn't believe in their heart. And that's where true confession and conversion and commitment is made, is in the heart, not in the words. Their lips say the right things, but they, make, they draw their hearts far from him in Isaiah. They remove their hearts. So again, I would ask you, where are you at? Is that wick, is it just dry? Is it, does it have some residual oil, some residual interest? But when the bridegroom comes back, when Christ comes back in all his glory and all of his praise, is your wick going to just flare for a moment and realize it wasn't based in substantial and deep spiritual nature? I can't answer that for you. It's not my place. It's your place. It's something that you have to determine. How deep and how, how deep your reservoir is of that spiritual oil for when Christ returns, when he calls on you. Last point. I believe the light of the lamp is meant to be our profession of faith. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 verses 15 and 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure or under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and may glorify your Father who is in heaven. The lamp is not meant for the benefit of the attendants of the virgins. The lamp is meant for the benefit and the glory of the bridegroom. So in your spiritual life, when you take your lamp and you light it, particularly in dark times like we're in right now, and your light shines, you don't hide it. You don't put it under a basket or a peck measure or a bushel. You don't hide it. You put it on a lampstand where it's highly visible to everybody in the room. There has never been a time recently where the light of Christians and the way that we approach these types of situations and the way we love on people who are in pain and confused and worried, where we can now use the light of Christ being a true and accurate reflection of Christ's light into a lost and dying world. Today is the day. This is where we act. This is what we were created for. This is where we make a difference. In our schools, in our businesses, in our communities, in our church. This is where we light up the world with the love of Christ. We take our spiritual light, a lamp that's filled with the oil, and we put it on a lampstand and we shine. But we don't shine for our own benefit. We don't shine for our own glory, but we shine for the glory of the Father. Look at that again. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We work good. We work hard. We work focused in these dark times. Not for our benefit, but that they may see the light and that they may see the glory of God through everything that you do, everything that you say, and everything that you think. There's never been a better time to be so prepared for what Christ has ready to do through you. Let's pray.